Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers podcast. Today, we're excited to have Silicon Valley vet John Hagel on the show. As the leader of the Center for the Edge at Deloitte, John gets to spend his time thinking about how to make sense of and profit from emerging opportunities on the edge of business and technology. He spent over 40 years in Silicon Valley as a management consultant, entrepreneur, speaker, and author. He's previously worked at McKinsey, BCG, and Atari. He's also the founder of two Silicon Valley startups. Besides his role at the Center for the Edge, John also occupies leadership roles at the World Economic Forum and the Santa Fe Institute, and also serves on the faculty of the incredibly cool Singularity University. He's the author of seven books, and he's won two awards from the Harvard Business Review for Best Articles. His personal blog is called Edge Perspectives, and John holds degrees from Wesleyan and Oxford and a JD and MBA from Harvard. Welcome to Hidden Layers. John, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. So we talk a lot sort of like the center for the edge. We talk a lot about the collision of new technologies, specifically AI and things like that, with the business of marketing. Uh, but I'd like you to start first talking about your consulting work at the Center for the Edge. You know, it's, it's, it's at the forefront of working with senior management teams to help transform their businesses and taking a look at all these new technologies and how, how that is going to work. But for our audience, could you you know, could you talk a little bit about, because they're interested in marketing, could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the collision of technology and marketing? And, and can you share with us any of the challenges and opportunities you're seeing uh, with companies experiencing those, those challenges? Sure. Um, it's part of a broader perspective that we have around how technology is reshaping the global economy. We call it the big shift. And in the context of marketing, our belief is it is going to require a fundamental shift. Uh, And the high-level way we have of representing it is moving from push-based marketing to pull-based marketing. And this is all enabled by technology. So the challenge is I think most companies, when they embrace these new technologies, just use them to support the traditional way of doing business. So the push-based marketing approach, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but at a high level, push-based marketing is, number one, intercept the customer wherever you can find them. You know, increasingly, we're finding ways to deliver advertising to everything from restrooms to taxi cabs, uh, but it's intercept and then isolate, uh, just the, the mantra is one-to-one marketing, me the vendor and you the customer. And then it's insulate, protect the, that relationship, that one-to-one relationship from anybody else participating in it. Insulate the customer and, and just stay connected and push whatever you can to them. That's the traditional approach. And again, we're using, in my experience, most most of the time we're using the tech new technologies to do push-based marketing more efficiently. 
our belief is the opportunity is to rethink marketing at a fundamental level, and we call it basically pull-based marketing. And what we mean by that is the key goal, rather than intercepting customers, is to attract customers, get them to seek you out wherever you are. So attract them. And the question is, well, how do you do that? It's by assisting them. It's by being more and more helpful to them. So word of mouth spreads that this company was really helpful to me in this context. You need to find them and connect to them. And then the question is, well, how do you become more and more helpful to customers? And part of it is having more visibility into who the customers are. But part of it is also a a notion of mobilizing more and more third parties to be helpful to the customer in whatever context you're in. So rather than one-to-one marketing, a key goal is how do you connect the customer with more providers and with with each other? Uh, One of the key values, we believe, of marketing in the future is to really enhance and enable virtual communities where you're creating communities of customers and they're sharing experience with each other and learning from each other in the use of the products and services. So it is a a fundamental shift, but we believe ultimately the the companies that will be most successful in this big shift are those that really embrace pull-based marketing. Interesting. So so on pull-based marketing then, what are the businesses needing to do differently of course you know it's not it's not traditional advertising it seems like you're saying that they need to really be the master of their customers interactions data understanding exactly what's going on and giving them the tools to pull in you know become influencers themselves i guess you could say influencers but more i would say even more boldly orchestrators i mean the, the i think the opportunity for companies as they begin to see the unmet needs of their customers is to really be proactive in terms of reaching out and identifying who are the third parties that could be most helpful to this customer and how can we connect them in ways that are going to uh, deliver value to the customer and where, where the, the orchestrator, if you will, gets the recognition and, and builds deep trust with the customer, you are really helpful to me. You addressed an unmet need and you found others who could help me as well as you. So am I correct in, in, in thinking that this is, this is sort of part of that, the discussion you had at one point about uh, brands offering a new kind of promise, or is that a different idea? No, I think it's all related, as you'll see. All our perspectives are connected in in, uh, in some complex ways. But it, the the notion of a shift in brand is again, it's based on our research on this big shift. You know, the traditional brands, the brands that uh, have been most successful in in business today, are those that are what we would call vendor or product based brands. Buy from us because we have superior products you can trust us to have superior products or or we're just a a better company and and we'll deliver superior products to you but it's all about us the company not anything about the customer and our belief is the brands of the future the ones will be most successful in the future are the, and I should say, too, that one of the reasons we think those, that traditional brand-based promise, the superior products, is going to diminish in, in power because customers have more visibility into more and more product options and more and more information about those products. And they can pick and choose. They don't have to just rely 
and, and they can do it very conveniently. It's not a huge amount of research, but there are sources that can help them to really evaluate different products and pick the one that's most, most useful for them or most valuable for them. So that brand-based promise, we think, is going to diminish in value. In its place, we believe the brands that will be successful in the future are what we call customer-centric brands, where the brand promise is not about the company or, or the product itself. It's about, we know you better than anyone else, and you can trust us to connect you with the best resources, best products and services, wherever they are. And so it's all about knowing the customer and really being trusted to use that knowledge to create more and more value for the customer. And that's a very different brand promise, again, from the traditional one that's more product-centric. Are there any examples of of companies doing this well now? Relatively few. I mean, I I think that uh, there are kind of early signals of of things that, that illustrate the potential. I'm I, I'm s- still a fan of uh, something that's actually been around for quite a while. It's uh, a website that Johnson & Johnson created called Baby Center. And it was really targeted for parents with small children who are facing lifetime, you know, major life change events and having a lot of questions and issues that they want to ask for help on and connecting with other parents with small children. It's really an online community where parents can connect with each other and get advice on, you know, my child did this or I'm you know, worried about that. What can I do? And Johnson & Johnson is the host of this community and providing the, the tools and resources and, and offering experts at various points in time who can come in to really address some of the needs. But I think it illustrates some of the potential, again, both of this pull-based marketing, parents Parents with small kids seek this place out <laughs> very quickly uh, because they hear about it through friends and family. And then it's this notion of, uh, you know, getting, uh, communicating, we know you, we know you and, and your needs and we're going to help you address them. Baby Center has been around a long time. I, I remember I've worked with them for, <laughs> I feel yeah. like almost 15 years now. So that's, and, and it is, and you're right. It's a very strong ongoing community unlike a lot of these sort of private labeled websites that are building communities around a very specific product like like pharma builds these communities too around products that they're that they're trying to uh, develop and come out with but baby center has been a very successful example as you say of a company learning from a community versus teaching a community right yeah and and the surprising thing to me, again, is, as you said, they've been around for a very long time, and yet how many other companies have embraced this kind of opportunity or model? I mean, it's shockingly few, and I think it's because we're still stuck in that push-based marketing mindset. Do you think companies, big companies that are very successful product marketers like P&G and Unilever and you know, those folks, are? do you think that they are – going to be able to adjust? You know, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. <laughs> people ask me, well, people ask me, am I an optimist or a pessimist? And I, I reply that I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term <laughs> pessimist because I believe, <laughs> I, you know, I believe in the end that it is possible to address these opportunities for anybody, including the most entrenched and, and uh, you know, oldest institutions. 
But on the other hand, it is challenging because you are forcing management leadership to question the most basic assumptions about what's driven success in the past. And so what you really need, I think, is a leadership that's really going to be willing to uh, move the organization into a very different way of operating and and connecting with, with the market. Yeah, I mean, I think Baby Center, again, is an interesting case study. I'm sure when it started, it started as an experiment, not as a huge strategic move into <laughs> what we are, you know, are now calling uh, pull-based marketing, so uh, push-based marketing. So it's interesting that you don't see more of the experiments succeeding at this point because I'm sure P&G and Unilever do those things. I know that, you know, like uh, Campbell's Soup has – has uh, its own communities and things like that, but it's it's none of them, like you say, are as strong as Baby Center. Interesting. Yeah, and I think again, it's it's hard to generalize, but my experience is many of the companies are using these communities just to push more and more of their products. Exactly. Versus really stepping back and saying, no, it's about the customer, and what can we do to help the customer and and learn, as you said, from the customer. And that'll help us to be even more effective in terms of products and services. Exactly. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit here and focus just on AI. Uh, a speaker from IBM, I believe, gave a talk this week about a prediction that the majority of jobs as we know them today will be gone or automated in the next 15 years. You have been pretty vocal about how AI on the other side of it can be a powerful catalyst for redefining work in ways that will restore our humanity. Can you elaborate on these two sort of viewpoints or are they the same thing? You know, I think the first, the first point I make scares everybody. Uh, The second point you make seems like a very big positive on the other side of that. Yeah. Again, I think it's a bit of the long run optimist, short term pessimist in the sense that, you know, I do believe that both are right. AI and, and, and technology is incre- automation is increasingly going to take the jobs that we do today away from people. But on the other side, it's an opportunity to really step back and rethink what could work be, what should work be for humans. I mean, again, I'm going to overgeneralize because of limited time, but, you know, in my experience in most large companies today and most work, it's all about tightly defined routine tasks that are highly standardized and tightly integrated. And if that's what work is, and I believe it is, that's what work is for most people today, it is uh, much more effectively performed by machines, by technology. I mean, they don't make mistakes. They don't get tired. They don't get distracted. (laughs) You know, why not let the machine take those routine tasks? and do them much more efficiently. Now, the untapped opportunity we see is rather than just think about, well, how do I get rid of workers or how do I reskill them so they can do other routine tasks somewhere else, step back and say, what if we focus the workers on addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value? And that that's really something that would be significantly helpful for the company. I mean, in, in a rapidly changing world, there are more and more problems and opportunities that are emerging to create value. But the problem is we're so consumed by the day-to-day tasks, we don't even have a chance to see them, much less address them. 
And the opportunity we see is focus people on doing that. And then as it becomes more routine, as we address an opportunity or problem and, and you know, now it can be replicated, okay, hand it off to the machine. Now what's next? What's the next big problem or opportunity? And our belief is this, is this applies to all workers throughout the organization. Every worker, we believe, has the opportunity to create value for the company if they are given that, that focus. Are you concerned, though, about the societal shift that will happen very quickly? I mean, one of the things we talk about, I'd like to get your opinion on, actually, is that a lot of the generational gap we have, a lot of the current polarization in the United States and in Europe, et cetera, might stem from the fact that society is changing more quickly than it ever has. And some would say that the reason for that change is technology. AI is now is going to put 2 million people at McDonald's out of work because they're going to automate the kitchen. How are businesses, number one, but we as a society supposed to handle this change? I mean, it's probably what you talk about at the most at the, at the, uh, at the edge. First of all, it's recognizing uh, that it is generating, uh, actually been writing recently about the, the sense that I have, I travel around the world and deal with, with business people in all parts of the world. And I'm struck by the growing emotion of fear as the dominant emotion everywhere. And at the highest levels, if I could get a, senior executive in the privacy of their office or down in the front lines or out in the community, it's fear. And while it's understandable, I think, again, as you said, part of certainly a big part of it is this notion that change is accelerating and, you know, the things we thought we could count on, we no longer can count on because they may not be there. And also I think it's increasing pressure at the same time. Competition is intensifying on a global scale. So we've got both more pressure and more rapid change generates understandable fear. And I think the first challenge is to really recognize and acknowledge that because I think most of us want to hide the fear and, you know, fear is a sign of weakness. You don't want to admit you have fear. The challenge, I think, is for us to frame an opportunity that could really excite people. And, uh, and help us to move more quickly to address the opportunities. And again, I think this redefining of work is a huge opportunity. And it's an opportunity for the companies in the sense of creating more and more value from everyone in the organization. But it's also an opportunity for the individual worker. I mean, now, my God, for the first time, you can make a real difference and not be doing these routine tasks that the machine should have been doing anyway. So I think it's getting people really energized and excited about the opportunity. But I worry that, and I'm going to ramble a bit, I'm sorry, but one of the things that I, I, I am concerned about is that we're increasingly as a society, to your point about social uh, side, we're increasingly being consumed by threat-based narratives on all sides of the political spectrum. It doesn't matter which side you're on. It's all about the enemies coming to get us. We need to mobilize now and resist we're all going to die. And that just plays to the fear. I'd like to see somebody go out there and really articulate the opportunity. What could we accomplish if we all came together and really harness these changes to create more value for each other and for the institutions we work with and for society? (laughs) 
nobody's articulating that. So, so it seems that it seems that one of the things that we could take away from this conversation and, and AI automating out the, the the tedious tasks is you could say that companies now have the opportunity to move those heads that headcount from the back to the front and work more on this idea of building community, dealing with the customers in a in a more comprehensive way because now you have more people available to do that. Some companies, it seems, will probably take the other, the opposite route and just cut headcount. But would you say that it would be a better strategy for most to repurpose those heads, like you said, and and use them for something more than the repetitive task instead of cutting those heads? Absolutely. Again, one way we have of representing the um, this big shift that we're going through in, in our global economy is we're moving from a world of scalable efficiency to a world of scalable learning. And what we mean is that if you look at all our institutions, not just companies, but governments, or universities, you name it, all of the institutions are increasingly focused on efficiency at scale. How do we cut costs? more aggressively and, and do it at scale. And while I think, again, it's understandable in, in the more stable world, that was the path to success. In a more rapidly changing world, our belief is, number one, efficiency has, scalable efficiency has diminishing returns. The more efficient you become, <laughs> the longer and harder you have to work to get the next increment of benefit. On the other side, there's an opportunity to focus the, the institution on scalable learning. How do we help everyone in the organization to learn faster? And in a rapidly changing world, that's what's essential. And I don't mean learning in the form of going to training programs and just you know, sharing existing knowledge. I'm talking about learning in the form of creating new knowledge. Again, by addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. And learning through action and I believe it's, in, again, throughout the organization, you, you talked about moving from the back to the front. And some of that, yes, absolutely. But, you know, my favorite example is what if we took the janitors in our facilities and refocused them instead of the sweeping and cleaning, which the robots increasingly are going to be able to do, what if we focused them on just looking around at the facility and identifying problems and opportunities to create more value for the participants in that facility. These people know the facilities better than anybody else. Imagine what they could do with these facilities if they were given the permission to do that. So anyway, I just, I think it, it applies throughout the organization, front, back, middle, everywhere. You touched on missed opportunities. One of the things that you've addressed across some of your writings is and, and in business gatherings is the idea of a missed opportunity in digital technology. You know, for, for somebody that's is knee deep in technology all day long and trying to accelerate technology adoption all day long in the marketing uh, sector, what do you see? What are you seeing as, as being missed by a lot of companies from a digital technology perspective? <laughs> Lots of things. Um, I, I think one that's actually becoming the focus of some of our new research is I'm struck that when I talk to executives, companies about digital technology, the whole focus is on the technology, you know, AI, Internet of Things, biosynthesis, you name it, you know, blockchain. They're all focused on the technology. 
you know, what, one of the things I like to point out to them is actually artificial intelligence is extremely stupid without data. If you don't have the data, AI is just helpless. And the, the assumption seems to be, well, the data is going to be there. You know, that's not an issue. It's how do we you know, invest more in AI and all these other things. My sense is actually, again, one of the trends we're seeing, and this has been documented in surveys around the world, is trust in all of our institutions is eroding. And it's not just companies. Again, it's governments, media, you, you name it. Any institution trust is eroding. In that kind of environment, people are less and less willing to share data about themselves. If I don't trust you, I don't want you to know about me. And I, my belief is that's why we're hearing so much about privacy and data security and all these, all these concerns. But it, I think ultimately it's, it's a sense that uh, we all have as, as customers, as participants, that we are not, the data is not being used for our benefit. It's being used to drive scalable efficiency of the companies that are capturing the data. And so I think that the, the challenge and opportunity again is, and the missed opportunity in digital technology is how do we focus, number one, on the data? How do we get privileged access to more and more data? And then number two, because I think it's related, how do we rebuild trust among the people we're trying to collect data on? Because without that trust, it's going to be harder and harder to get access to the data. And that, I think, is the big opportunity. And, and again, it goes back, as, as I said, everything's connected. If we're doing um, pool-based marketing and uh, customer-centric brands where we're really focused on delivering value to the customer, then we'll, we will rebuild trust, I believe. We'll see that, oh, you're, you're providing more and more value to me. Can I provide you with more data about me so you can provide even more value? We talk about data a lot in our industry, and, and it's surprising to me how many people have a lot of it, but it's not necessarily in useful form. And then on the other side, how many people have none of it and thought they had a lot of it. So it's, a, it's an interesting dialogue to have. So we're running out of time. I just wanted to ask one last question. Uh, you have a lot. You seem to be doing a lot. You're writing books. You are leading a number of important uh, efforts globally. You have a full-time job with Deloitte. What is next for you? <laughs> oh, man, living on the edge, you never can be totally sure what's next. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I think that uh, one key element, again, I've hinted at it, but is this notion that increasingly we need to, I say that I, my career has been in business strategy uh, but over time, I've come to believe more and more that it's more about psychology than strategy. If we don't understand the emotions that are driving people and not just focus on you know, charts and graphs and persuasion, but really understand the emotions that are driving people, we're not going to accomplish what we need to accomplish. Um, and so I'm, I'm much more focused now on understanding emotions and how emotions can evolve and, and be shaped. And, and in particular, one area that I've been pursuing for quite a while that is going to continue is, uh, in this context is the increasing importance of cultivating passion, a, a very specific form of passion, what I call the passion of the explorer, 
that is going to be, I believe, essential for all of us to overcome the fear that we, again, understandably feel in a more rapidly changing world and move to hope and excitement where we're actually excited by the change because it's an opportunity to get better, faster, and have more impact. That's the big uh, area of focus for me. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Hidden Layers. Thank you again, John, for joining us. That was a very unique and interesting viewpoint that we haven't heard yet on both marketing and AI. Thanks everyone for listening and we look forward to you joining us next time. Hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.